And so here is Matthew 9, 35, going into the next chapter where Jesus is speaking. And as we've been doing this throughout the weeks, he's been performing many miracles. And we're told that Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, this verse is remarkable. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, Jesus, um, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And that is Jesus walking into the presence of a very large and expansive crowd, having compassion for them, seeing the need to serve them, immediately moving toward prayer, affixing that need, and then delegating even his very ministry to these 12 average Joes. Just people, fishermen, tax collectors, a zealot, just someone who's prone toward radical political rebellion against Rome. He takes this hodgepodge of people, and you have to see the phrase. We're told that he went throughout villages, teaching in the synagogues, healing every disease and every affliction. And then he goes to his apostles and says, you have authority now. And the exact phrase is, heal every disease and every affliction. The repetition is intentional. He's trying to get them to mirror his ministry. So there's no problem here as far as what Jesus has encountered, as far as the power or his ability to perform great miracles. Throughout all the synagogue, teaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction, we're told. The problem here for Jesus rests in the phrase that there were many sheep without a shepherd. That was his problem as he saw the crowd. He saw that they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. That they were under oppression, either demonic oppression, physical oppression, taken in by all the lies of this world and the vain philosophies and opinions of every human thought that's ever happened, contrary to the wisdom of God, in every society. And that is what they are oppressed under. 
And so he is teaching the truth, the gospel of the kingdom, going throughout not just the religious places of the synagogue, but in every city and village. But the idea that he saw these crowds and he was taken back, that's the point of the text. It's the sheer number of them. So much so that the incarnate God feels daunted, is taken back by just the amount of work that has to happen for them to come to be released. You and I are harassed and helpless. We are the sheep. That is us. If your mind is anxious, you are harassed. If your body is sick, you are helpless, aside from God healing you. If you have sin, you are condemned to death. Apart from Christ, this is it. Apart from Christ, we are helpless, we are harassed. It's an unflattering image for us to take on this idea of being foolish sheep scattered across a field, prone to wander, prone to harm, prone to eat poisonous food and berries, prone to roll down a cavern and break our leg. This is what sheep are. They're pretty much just walking grocery stores for carnivores. That's all they are. They can't even see clearly. Their vision is so bad. Nearsighted. Never even able to see the wolves lurking only a few meters away on the tree line of their field. And there, right now, I have spiritually metaphorized your regular life from Monday to Saturday. That is our spiritual danger. This is how we walk this world. Filled with demons, devils, filled as Luther said in his hymn, with lies, deception, physically and mentally weak and oppressed. This is us apart from Christ. The need to come to Jesus, particularly on a Sunday, that God would have it this way, that it would be from week to week, as if when the sheep are scattered throughout all the field, And the shepherd raises his voice and speaks with the voice that the sheep know. They all come flocking to him. And then he distributes food to them easily. It is so hard for Jesus in all his power and glory to minister to the people he is ministering to. So that when he's going throughout all the towns and villages, these crowds are flocking to him. And even then, he is almost outmatched. He can't actually meet with all of them by necessary consequence of the limitations of his incarnation. And you and I, God has made this church such a way that it would be no matter where you go on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, all the way to Saturday, there is in Scripture this thing called the Lord's Day in which it is impossible to feed all the sheep when they all run out every different ways, going about their business. But there is a day in which the Lord of the pasture calls, and the sheep come, and all in unison, in the most efficient use of time, and managing all of our souls and spiritual health well, we feed, we eat the words of God. We cleanse our minds, renew our minds, and be ready for Monday's deception. 
because the crowd is great. How much more are we limited in this ministry as a church when Jesus Christ is daunted by the sheer numbers of these sheep who have no shepherd? So Jesus' compassion, I love this. If I can say this much, I don't know how well the sermon will go after this. This is the best part of the sermon to me. Jesus' compassion, it moves me again, even preparing it this morning and going through it. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. I love that idea. See, like when a politician sees a crowd, what he really could see is votes. He could see a pathway to office. When a musician sees a crowd, what a musician really could see is tickets, a pathway to stardom, to a record label. When a pastor sees a crowd, what he really could see is a reason for self-importance, a reason or a pathway to notoriety. And this is the best verse of them all. Because it says, when Jesus saw the crowd, he saw them. Do you see that? He just saw them. And we are told that God had compassion for them. Jesus saw them for who they were. And he had pity upon them. He cared for them. Not for what he could get from them. Not that he could fleece the sheep and get the wool and make a profit. He cared for the sheep. The word for compassion is a unique word. It's only used a few times. And a scholar would say, it has no English corollary. And so it's the best way to translate. They say it is a deep emotion of true humanity. Pity and sympathy wrapped up all with a tight translation of trying to say that his heart went out. His heart went out of his chest. His heart extended to them. He saw them, blind and aimless, foolish sheep ready to roll down the next cliff. And his heart went out to them. Every time Matthew uses this word in his gospel, which will be four or five other times, it always is consequently resulting from a personal need that is seen and then an immediate practical response. There is a need where God's heart goes out and then there has to be a remedy now because love commands it. Love demands it that Jesus has to remedy this now. These crowds are here and they are lost. They are so, so lost. Don't you love Jesus this way? 
To love him for his love. To love him. And is, are you not drawn to the fact that he would be so lovely? That he would love just for love. See, love of God is like the sweetness of a flower that just, it, it draws us. Like, like a bee from yards away across, across a very large field. Full, filled with, with thorns and thistles and there's nothing good in it at all. But there's a fragrance of the love of the sweetness of Jesus Christ here. That he would have compassion. That he would care about you. I don't know how it is. When I am busy throughout the week, we have so many things to do. But how hard it is to pause and look at somebody. I get this feeling sometimes when I'm just doing things. Like when I'm going to a checkout or meeting someone across the table to exchange money in a brief, brief transaction. That that's someone with a name tag and I don't know them and I can't care to know, I literally can't care to know them. But I feel sometimes just a love for them. I don't know why, just feel. But the realities of life is I don't have time to talk to you. I don't know your story. I would love to care for you. I'd love to share the glories of Jesus with you. I have to go here. I have to do that. There are so many limitations in which we never really just pause and look at one another. Look at other people in our life and actually have this phrase of a heart going out of our chest. Actually having compassion, love for someone else amidst all of our busyness and desires. And here is Jesus. This is the beauty of God. I mean, it's, it's, it's remarkable that here is God. This man, true man, not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin has the heart of a child. That he's that sensitive. That Jesus Christ himself cares for people in such a way. That he doesn't just simply run them off and say, well this is how they'll go, and that's how they'll be, and the world's a really hard place, and it's really difficult. And if you distance yourself from these realities, of not loving other people the way Christ is playing it out here, then it's easy. Don't feel the burden. Don't feel the love. Your days will be much smoother. Going to the checkout or seeing other strangers won't be a big deal. Here is Jesus. He is not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He is the full man. He is mature with power. He has miracles at his right hand for all. Yet he is a child at heart. Innocent, soft, sensitive, and sated with compassion. His love, being bound into real humanity, is so limited as a necessary consequence, as we said, of him being limited. He sees everyone harassed and helpless on all sides, and he cannot handle it. He can't, as you and I, meeting any stranger, can't give yourself over to them in love. You can't give them the time. You can't learn all their names. You can't know all their children's names. You can't know what makes them afraid and what their hobbies are and bring Jesus Christ into their whole life. You can't do that. Even God couldn't do that, wrapped in humanity. And so the crowd is there. And imagine this. Someone who really loves, not like you or I. Imagine the torment of Jesus. For God is love. He is love. 
It's not just a thing or a hobby he does on his weekends. He is in his own nature love. Now, bound in humanity, unable, unable to express that love as he sees it before him in this crowd of blind sheep. Imagine if it's possible the torment of his soul in this. If we would ever dare to love that much. The solution then, obviously for Jesus, is immediate. For the word is compassion. And that word always follows with immediate response. I love Jesus Christ this way. He is always definitive, practical, real, in the world. His hands are dirty. There's a problem. Let's fix it now. And so here is the crowd. And he says, let's pray. Pray earnestly. Pray earnestly, for the harvest is plentiful and the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers into his harvest. It is his field. These are his people. They are his sheep and he will find them. But we must pray that there will be laborers to go. Because one man can't do it, even if he is God. God has made it this way. He has wired it this way in his humanity. So the Lord would send out laborers. That is, there must be a burden. The prayer precedes the burden. That Jesus says, if you don't sense the need for laborers to be in this field, many would look at the same field and not see a single piece of wheat. Nothing to harvest. There is nothing there. Because the world is generally okay. People are not dead in their sin. Destined for eternal condemnation apart from Christ. There is no absolute judgment. There is no really we're all just getting by. But Jesus in all his love and absolute wisdom. Sees the absolute destitute situation. And the need to act. That he sees the field as white. Prime. There is so much need. The crowds are here and there must be laborers to go into the harvest for it is the Lord's harvest. It is his harvest. That's why he is Lord of the harvest. There is confidence that if people were to go into the harvest, there would be fruit to be had because it is the Lord's. It is not depend upon us going or not going, being good enough or not good enough, saying the right words or making Jesus Christ known into the world. It is about his harvest. If you go, you will have it. It is his. They're there. They're his people. So the mission of the Messiah, and this is where we break to say, the mission of the Messiah, as the sermon series progresses, the idea of how Jesus is conducting his ministry throughout all the world in the Gospels can be mirrored. And I see here at New Life, at us as a church, in three particular mirrors or ways or perspectives or aspects. That there are three. There is one, those who are shepherds. There are those who are elders. Two, there are those who pray. And thirdly, there are those who go. If we have all three of these, we are taking this seriously. If we have all three of these well, we are modeling ourselves after the mission of our Messiah. So in this church, we have 10 elders. 
Those who are charged to be the elders of New Life Presbyterian Church. They are called the shepherds. They are the overseers. They are under shepherds of the great shepherd Jesus Christ. They are charged or responsible for the spiritual interest of this church. And they have been delegated to various groups of the church. To be constant in prayer, devotion, asking questions, seeking how people are doing. Are you doing family worship? How is your devotional life? Do you have any questions or concerns you want to talk about? How is your marriage doing? How are the children? What's work like? Do you have material needs? Are you growing spiritually? Are you doing too much in the church? Are you not doing enough in the church? Do you want to be involved in something? Where are your gifts? Where are your talents? How can I help you grow? Can I get you in a small group? This is their business. That it would never be said, God forbid it never be said that this verse applied to here. That there would be sheep here without a shepherd. The burden of it is that that compassion of Jesus is that is intolerable. One of the great maladies of American evangelicalism is that they make these massive box churches where people come and go with no accountability, no shepherding oversight. They could be doing anything they want according to their place and all under the guise of a false assumption that it is right with their soul. But it might not be right with their soul because they have no shepherd to guide their soul. And we wonder why there's so many Christians in America. But America's not Christian at all. Because there's many sheep without a shepherd, if they even are real sheep. But that all predicates on devoiding ourselves from the mission of Jesus. This is how the church works. We need shepherds. We are fools. I need the session as a pastor to look over me. We need each other. These are the things. These are the things that Jesus cares about. And he authorizes his laborers. In Luke 6... It says that Jesus went on a mountain and prayed all night. He continued in prayer. Then he called all his disciples and he chose 12 of them and he gained them apostles. It was definitive. It was intentional. He picked exactly the 12, including Judas, for this job. Simon Peter, impulsive, tenacious personality, a natural born leader, was with Jesus closely, saw his transfiguration, Of course, his resurrection and ascension. Andrew, the brother of Simon, also Peter, one of the very first followers of Jesus, was originally following John the Baptist, left John the Baptist to come to see the true Messiah, which was the purpose of John's ministry all along. And he led his brother Peter to Christ, lived in his brother's shadow throughout the Gospels. James, the son of Zebedee, is the first martyr of these twelve, killed. He's called James the Greater. John was his brother. John and James, Jesus called them the sons of thunder. They were passionate. They weren't always right. They didn't have all the great education, but they cared. And that's why he chose them, perhaps. They're the ones who simply were devoted to Jesus, actually gave up their time, and said, I will follow you. 
And they were a bull in a china shop. But they were actually trying. Sons of thunder. And then there's Philip. Not much is said about him. He said to Jesus once in John 14, Jesus, show us the Father, and that will be enough. And then he couldn't even get it to the point where Jesus said to him, I have been with you this long, and you have not seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Bartholomew, Nathaniel, is also his name. He was a very straightforward person, said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? deriding Jesus for being born out of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I knew where you were before I even saw you. He had an experience of Christ and immediately let go of all his prejudice, racism, tribalism, and started following the one true Messiah. Thomas, we're told, is doubting Thomas. He's the one who wanted to see Jesus' wounds, would not believe without knowing, without putting his finger in his side. Then we have Matthew, the tax collector, the customs official of Capernaum. He was the one who got you off the boat and would charge you. And we saw him converted only a chapter ago, going to write this gospel. There's James, the son of Alphaeus, the second James, who's called the lesser. Thaddeus, who's also called Jude. And Simon the Zealot. And the beauty of their lives is that we know nothing of their lives. We just know them here in this story. We know them in these verses. That's it. And that's the beauty of it all. Just quiet, humble submission underneath the Lord Jesus Christ, faithfully going. And all of these men went on their mission trips after Jesus' resurrection. They all went everywhere and they all died, except for John. And then Judas Iscariot, the actual treasurer of the group, the trustee, the one who betrayed them with a kiss. Jesus knew and brought him along the whole time. Judas went out and performed miracles from the authority that Jesus gave him. And he wasn't even of him. He betrayed him with a kiss to kill him, yet saw the power of the kingdom and did everything that he was called to do. How remarkable it is to remember that all the signs and wonders done here have nothing to do with the essential spiritual condition of these men. It is authority that is just given to them, and they do it. But Judas was not even truly a disciple of Christ, yet he saw all the signs and wonders of Christ. Those who pray is the second part. So there are those who are shepherds. There are those who are the elders. The second part of us as a church taking on this mission and model for how Jesus conducted his work are those who pray. In Mark 9.29, in this similar context, the disciples are going out and doing what Jesus told them to do. And they do have authority. And they're going out performing signs and wonders. There was a man who had a son who was possessed by a demon and they came to them, and the disciples could not cast him out. And they pulled Jesus aside privately, so as not to perhaps get embarrassment. And they said, Lord, why could we not cast him out, but you cast him out? And Jesus' response was, this kind is not driven out by anything but prayer. That's amazing. That Jesus would not say, well, you understand, see now, I am God incarnate and I can cast out demons. Which that would be a good answer. But he didn't want to give them the easy answer. He wanted to give them the hard answer. 
that Jesus didn't just simply let them defer that off as, well, that's not my prerogative. Jesus has to handle this one. That's true. Therefore, pray. Pray. Jesus didn't say, well, you can't do this one. This one's too tall for you, little Johnny. No, it is too tall for you. Therefore, pray. You cannot do this. You cannot win. And it's not as though Jesus was saying, you've never been praying this whole time. The emphasis is, you must continue to pray. You must pray more. You must stretch your faith longer, further. Put your face down on the ground and pray and pray and pray. Because it makes no difference to send laborers into the harvest if there is no prayer supplying the engine or the power behind that work. It is pointless. We are, again, remember, just sheep going out into the world, devils and demons field. There is nothing you and I could do aside from prayer. And so Jesus begins it by not sending his 12, but praying. And we here at the church try to model this through prayer, prayer groups and various things. On Thursday morning, we have a prayer group called The Lost, The Country, and The Church, LCC. It's deliberately geared toward this. We are praying for the lost, the lost, those who are sheep, who don't know where to go. We have to pray for that. That people don't just get converted. It's not like filling out a census bureau format. Like they don't just simply say, I think I'm going to follow Jesus. That is a spiritual war. That is the greatest miracle that's ever been done under the sun. Is that someone would actually be converted, renewed from the inside with a new nature and be a new creature and love Jesus. To be turned from a wolf to a sheep. If you could do that quickly with a snap of your fingers, then I'd say maybe you don't have to pray. But if we're actually praying for the lost to be found, well, that's nothing more than a transformation of the very person. It must be prayer. And lastly, the one are those who go. There has to be shepherds. What's the point of going out and finding lost people if we bring them to a church without shepherds? We bring more sheep to not be shepherded as they're already not being shepherded out there. It wouldn't make much sense. It'd be kind of like going fishing with holes in your net. Why even bother? But if we do have shepherds, which we do, godly men, and we do have prayer warriors, which we do, then therefore, let's go. This 937 mission is geared toward this. And again, I said I'm not very creative, so it's 937, because it's Matthew 937. 937 mission is go. This is where Jesus says to go. And there has to be a ministry in which we are deliberately, aside from all the other things we do in this church as community outreach, just simply going to say, Jesus Christ is Lord. Let me speak to you about him. Repent of your sins and believe upon Jesus. You need to hear about him. Let me open the scriptures. Do you have time for me to lay this out? Because if you're waiting for non-church people to come to the church, you'll be waiting a long time because they're non-church people and they don't want to come to the church. The whole point of Jesus is saying they have to go out there. You have to go out there. They're over there and they're lost sheep and they don't know any better. They don't know the goodness of Christ. They don't know what a good sermon could do to their soul. They don't know how to feed upon his word. You have to go get them. 
Remember, sheep's vision, their spiritual vision is very nearsighted. They can't see all that. Go get them. And there's a lot of them, apparently. There's a crowd out there. But there's just so few laborers is Jesus' problem. That's where the problem is. There's not enough that even care to go. The, and what drives this is nothing more than that beautiful word, compassion. Compassion, just caring for the other. Just caring for them. That would make someone go. And this is the dangerous desire. This is the dangerous desire of a thing called love. Now we know that desires can be bad. Bad desires, sinful desires, of course they're dangerous. But see, good desires are dangerous too. They're very dangerous in a different way. The desire for the good of another. The desire for the good of someone else. To care for them. To have compassion for them. To have concern for them. Is actually very dangerous. You're doing fine as a single person. You get married or have some people in your life or your family, your parents. You have love. Your, your heart is out there a little bit. You get children and your heart just keeps going out there. And all of a sudden you're always worried, concerned. Because pieces of your heart have been given. And your heart just isn't here within your own chest as a barrel. When you love, that word for compassion of your heart being extended that hurts to have your heart out there in the real world where people can hurt it. Well, that's dangerous. But see the desire modeled for Jesus, the dangerous desire of actually caring, extending to these strangers, these masses, the, the monolithic thing called the crowd. Jesus sees them all as little children and fathers and mothers and stories and hobbies and laughter and personalities. They're all wrapped up in this thing called we just the crowd. And Jesus loves them all. His heart is out that far. Well, that's a dangerous thing. See, Easterners have found a great truism in Buddhism that if you can rid yourself of all desire, you find more peace. Which is like literally the most common sense thing ever. Just don't care. If you just don't care, you're safe. If your schedule's too busy to care, then you have an excuse and you're safe. And Westerners found the same truth in Stoicism. Rid yourself of these desires. Just be stoic. Disconnect. Be aloof. Don't care too much and you'll be fine. But if you dare, oh boy, now you know I'm getting into it. If you dare to reason like a Christian, if you dare to do what Jesus did, you can't be a Buddhist or a Stoic. You put your heart out there and actually care that your stomach would churn out of concern for others. And so the laborers in the field is a labor of love. It's a burden. It's to have a heavy heart for the other. And it's a burden that has to be placed upon us by the Lord, hence the need to pray. All men... All of us are shepherdless sheep going to the slaughter, running headlong over a cliff. Out of our own foolish devices, we die in our sin in everlasting condemnation. This is the gospel. This is the need why it is actually a problem. And the concern or condemnation to have compassion for these people. I cannot offer you Zen peace. I can only offer you what Jesus Christ is saying, which is a genuine heart-wrenching concern. For others. That is what we're called to. And that concern will be a burden. 
carried by the cords of love as we drag around this burden for others. And that love is fulfilling. That's the way Jesus came into the world. He modeled this type of lifestyle to care that much for others. This compassion is a burden that can break you. It can weigh you down heavy if you would think long and hard about the judgments of sin and the mercies of God that could be had and the terrible situation that we all are in by our own devices. If you would dare to think about that long enough, it would wear you down and make you heavy. It would cause you so far to come low to maybe even wear you on your knees to the point of actually praying to say that this must be the solution, to take on the burden of what Jesus is describing. It's a dangerous, dangerous passion. It is a labor of love to care for those and their souls eternally. And so closing with that, what could possibly motivate us to do this? What could motivate you has to be, and the only true motivation is Jesus Christ himself. The labor of love that Jesus demonstrated on that cross. It was labored with every one of his breaths as he breathed his last. Breathing, breathing, and then dying. For you, for me. That is how he finished his days. Not without leaving and delegating us to do the exact same thing. Dear Father, Lord, we pray that you would send laborers into the harvest. Lord, you've extended your heart. You've put yourself out in a vulnerable place, exposing your own very life to a body, vulnerable to death, and giving it up on the cross. Lord, we pray that you would make us laborers into the field. Lord, we pray that you would have us see this labor is a labor of love. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see that you are the great labor. You labored with love onto the cross for us. Lord, we worship you and praise you for that.